Welcome to the Humanity First podcast. I am Chris Ryan, along with the president and CEO of BAMSI. He is Peter Evers, and we're going to get things started right off the bat today as Peter's going to uh, introduce our guest. Thank you very much, and uh, welcome to Humanity First. Uh, and we have a very special guest today. We have Chastity Bowick, who is the director um, of the um, Transgender Emergency Fund. And we have so much to talk about, uh, Chastity. First of all, welcome to the show. And thank you for carving out a bit, bit of time, because I, I suspect that what happened this morning in your in your day-to-day work is a fairly typical morning. Chastity actually was dealing with emergency uh, and was going to actually come into the office to do the uh, interview, but we're doing it uh, remotely because of you having to adjust to an emergency that's going on. And I mean, I guess I would ask you, Chesty, is that is that a normal morning for you? <laughs> yes. Good morning, um, Peter and Chris. Thank you for having me. And unfortunately, yes. Day to day, we receive calls or emails of transgender or gender non-conforming folks across the country. Um, that are in dire situations, you know, due to the situation they've been dealt. You know, the cycle of, of oppression towards our communities are is so real that we see it on a daily basis. So it can be, you know, something as tragic as someone being attacked by their family um, for being who they are and now they're homeless, or someone who is already homeless and unfortunately to survive has been engaged in survival sex work, could have been attacked by one of their dates. And we try to, you know, provide as many resources um, and referrals as we can because, but it's just so difficult. We only can help people in Massachusetts. So it's like, what do we tell those people in Arkansas and North Carolina who are reaching out to us? And unfortunately at this time, all we can do is try to find resources in their area and try to give them some type of resources, but it's very difficult. Yeah, you know, I was just thinking about that. I recently um, had the privilege to go on a uh, bit of a hiking tour in Colorado and spent some time up at 10,000 feet, which makes your head very light. Um, But I was struck by the difference in people's thinking, political thinking, um, when I was out there and often think that sometimes Massachusetts, though, although not perfect by a long way, is is a state that really has uh, made an effort uh, to pass legislation, which hopefully we'll talk about a little bit uh, as we go through uh, and recognize um, difference, I suppose. Again, long way to go. You know, I was watching um, one of the many awards that you had you, you have received, Chastity, since 19, uh, since 19, shows how old I am, 2008, um, with the work that you've been doing in the community. And, and I will put a, a, a bit of a uh, plug in for Jesse Pack, who is obviously a BAMSI employee and a wonderful human being. And uh, obviously, a lot of the work with the emergency fund uh, began, I think, uh, with Jesse that you've continued. But, you know, one of the things that was on one of the posters was, and I'm just going to read it, is nobody should be live in fear of discrimination because of who they are. And that's such a powerful statement, but it's it's such an obvious statement to somebody who is perhaps a member of the dominant paradigm, right? We take that for, for, for granted. I certainly do, certainly have all my life. And being confronted with that question, I think, well, you know, there are... Uh, people, there are populations, there are groups in this country and all over the world who don't take that for granted because it's not a fact. Uh, And you're describing what happened this morning and what you're dealing with is an everyday occurrence uh, for the trans community. Um, And I'm um, a behavioral health uh, uh, clinician 
Um, you know, and what I've learned over the years is that vulnerable populations in terms of mental health, uh, such as trans folks, are 10 times more likely to be at risk of suicidal ideation and completion. Um, and when we talk about putting our resources into a particular population, why wouldn't we be starting with a population most vulnerable? That's sort of flipping it a little bit. Um, I'm just interested to, to hear your take on that, because, you know, here, here at BAMSI, we provide uh, an awful lot of those sort of behavioral health interventions. Yeah, I think when we think about wraparound services, uh, we have to provide everything that is the reason why this person is in the situation that they're in. So, for example, you know, a lot of these organizations across Boston, they want trans folks to come in for HIV test and a slice of pizza, but you're not going to address the issue of where am I going to sleep that night or help me address that issue. So, yes, mental health definitely, like, I would say 20 times higher in my own experience of having two different occasions of dealing with suicidal ideation um, because of acceptance, because of not being able to get employment or not being able to hold down housing. And it's very difficult. But then when you don't have that mental health outlet, that's when you turn to substance abuse mm -hmm. and other dangerous behaviors because you don't have that outlet. And then it's like, oh, people say like, oh, trans people, I can just go apply and get a job. Like they can work at McDonald's. And yes, we can, but we also can be lawyers and doctors mm -hmm. and judges and politicians. But when you're kicked out of your home between the ages of 14 and 17, you miss a lot of life lessons. So we miss that. How do I balance a checkbook? How should I present myself in an interview? And how should I conduct myself in so many other life lessons that we miss? So then we turn to the streets and we learn the wrong way sometimes. Mm -hmm. um, so I think a lot of programs need to think about wraparound services. Um, I, I love Bamsey, of course, um, for the work that they do and Jesse Pack because he saved my life, him and the Transgender Emergency Fund. And this is just a brief example of how we try to stop that cycle of oppression. So you think of me, I came here at 18 from Rochester, New York. Um, the next year I was living on my own, no family around, um, started my transition. Thought I fell in love, was in an abusive relationship for six years. And then after that, found myself homeless um, due to trying to get out of that relationship. I would call the police one time and they came and said, this is not domestic violence. This is two men having a disagreement. And so this is starts that cycle of oppression. So then when I left and went to a shelter here in Boston, after I disclosed that I was trans, the next question was, how long have you been HIV positive? Hmm. So now... I'm presumed to be HIV positive because I'm black and trans. So then that turned me away from that shelter and then I slept on the streets that night. The next night with no food, no money, I started indulging in survival sex work and then survival drug use to cope, to be able to get through that sex work. And thank God a friend actually told me about the trans emergency phone one day and I called them up and Jesse answered. And I'm thinking like, oh, maybe I can get a $50 gift card or, or something. And it was the complete opposite. Like he got me to Worcester and was able to find a safe room for me that they paid to rent for for three months, which allowed me to get on my feet and figure out what do I want out of this life? And one of the things was to be able to give back to my community. Um, and so you just think about that. If I never got that information about the trans emergency fund, I honestly don't know if I would be here today having this podcast with you all, because I was going down a very dangerous road with no outlets. So that's why I say we 
really save lives and it's like a cycle of oppression, but we also need to make sure that we're providing wraparound services. So if you provide mental health and you can't do housing, well, let's figure out who can you refer them to to do the housing, just not leave a person hanging. Um, so that's what we're trying to educate to a lot of organizations about trying to provide different services to our community. It needs to be a, a community partnership, working with different organizations to make sure everyone is getting these resources. When, when Peter was talking earlier about you know, discrimination, and he, you gave that quote, you know, I think that everybody has kind of a baseline feeling of, hey, I don't discriminate, and I don't want to discriminate, and then it kind of ends, right? I mean, everybody has their own little things that uh, are, in in some ways, um, you know, uh, can be seen as, as discriminatory, and um, a mindset that perhaps um, is one that they don't even understand uh, that uh, there is discrimination that is that is taking place. And, it, you know, I, my question is, how do we get to, you know, a place where there is that commonality and understanding where discrimination does, does not uh, take place? Because, again, I think a lot of it is unintentional, um, but, you know, we are in a society when there is not a commonality of understanding of perspective and culture that you can get to a place where you do view yourself differently, even if it's subvertly. Oh, that's a good question. So I would take it as people are too consumed with other people's lives, first and foremost. Totally um, when I think about when I've done tr uh, trainings at, um, let's just say, Bridgewater State Corrections, right, for the corrections officer, because mm -hmm. they had an individual who was transitioning on the job. It was amazing to see how so people were so wrapped up of what she was going to be doing in her stall in the locker room. It was, I, I, I've never seen nothing like it. And I tried to compare it to is like, you're making it more of an issue because why do you care so much? Mm -hmm. If this person is in their bathroom stall, and they're not peeking under or looking over at you're trying to see you, what is the problem? Mm -hmm. And people get so wrapped up into, oh, that's making me uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. um, I'll just like to quote um, this guy named Charlemagne from the Breakfast Club um, in New York. He made a statement a few years ago, like, oh, when I'm in a room with trans women, I don't know how to act. I feel uncomfortable. And now think about, we have millions of listeners who listen to that show, millions of men who listen to that show. And it's like, oh, should I feel uncomfortable when I'm in a room with there? Mm -hmm. It's like people make other people have a reason to feel some sort of way about different people, different pop subpopulations, trans people, immigrants. And I think it's up to us as community leaders, especially people with large platforms to not pull out suggestive statements that will make someone feel like they can't be in a room with another person that they don't even know. And it's like, what's making you so all uncomfortable? And mm -hmm. I think it's people have something inside of them yep. that they're uncomfortable with and they reflect it out on other folks. Yeah, and it's a really good point because there is this line between honest dialogue and saying things that create more of a um, a problem than they seek to find a solution, right? Where, you know, someone, if, if someone is saying something like that and giving their true feelings, I mean, that's kind of important to dissect and go through if it's not, you know, kind of a throwaway line. But um, you also have to be very cognizant of the power of, of words. So how do you go about, you know, finding that line in your view between an honest dialogue and, and creating understanding so that a person, you know, expresses something that 
they shouldn't feel, as you mentioned, is more reflective upon them, but is still their feelings in that in that instance. And you ha- and how do you overcome that? I think it's more of an education piece mm-hmm. for everyone, because if you have never met a trans person or never interacted with one, don't jump to conclusions mm-hmm. because just like I like to use this saying all the time, there's a lot of shitty different type of Americans mm-hmm. in, in the world. And even in the trans community, mm-hmm. nobody's perfect, but don't treat us all as one. You know, some people have said like, oh, I had an interaction with a trans woman. This is one of my, um, you know, heterosexual cisgender male friends. I had an interaction with a trans woman and she was coming unto me and da 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 and, and that's why I try to stay away from them. And I was like, er, wait a minute, mm-hmm. that's, let's break this down a little bit. You had this one bad experience. We are not all the same, mm-hmm. you know? I mean, there's a lot of cisgender women who are a little cuckoo. Everybody has that in their different populations, but do not judge us as all the same. Um, and I think that's where the breakdown is, is people try to get lumped up in, oh, okay, we see Caitlyn Jenner. Yeah. So everybody's like Caitlyn. And it's, speaking it's as a, difficult. <laughs> speaking as a white male, Peter, I mean, I can't remember a time when I've s- said or anyone around me has said, hey, I'm not going to deal with white males anymore because of, you know, this guy I met at the bar. <laughs> right. I mean, it's it's always it's always something it's always something that is different. And um, then everybody gets kind of lumped in the same category. And it's really bad because every person obviously deserves the benefit of the doubt if you're a negative person or deserves, you know, the embrace of something good that's going to happen if you're a positive person. And I think that that's really, really important in this in this dialogue and conversation, Peter. Well, I think, you know, Chesley, just a couple of things that you said really struck me as um, fundamentals of humanity. Um, and one of the one of the things I think about a lot is when you look at oppressed groups like, um, you know, the the stereotypes that white people made against black people post slave well pre and post slavery the how um how the gay movement was was pilloried and attacked and you know this uh, and the and the transgender but and there's one thing i think is that is constant through that and that's this fear this underlining fear that the dominant group has and i wonder i guess this is a question for you chastity as we become more aware and and you know um caitlin jenner is a good example Uh, there are people who are representing this community like yourself who are actually telling their story we're we're thinking about appreciative inquiry you know as you were telling that story i thought you and i got to this point to this day our journeys are so different and there were so many obstacles in front of you which i have no idea about but i've just learned an awful lot because we asked the question because we're on this this call do you think that and you know you are out there and you're 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 telling your story and it means so much to people who are in that community but i think it also means so much to people who are not who perhaps had some of those prejudices before say oh wait a minute that's just a person who's telling their story and and now i'm more informed about this do you think i know it's glacial our our progress you know but i feel like you telling your story is just making such a huge difference yeah i agree i think that 
that's the point. Storytelling is what got us to where we are in Massachusetts. You know, I remember my first time speaking in front of the Massachusetts legislator trying to get public accommodations into place. And it was terrifying, but at the same time, it was powerful and uplifting and feeling like, okay, my story is going to make a difference. Um, And I think that's what we need to do. We need to continue to tell our story so people can understand and also see the differences, right? Like our the transgender community, oh my God, it's we are so diverse in our own right, um, and and we all don't have the same beliefs. And I am a firm believer of only speaking from my experiences and the experiences of the folks that I've served. Um, but I just don't like to go far fetch for an example of saying like you know a statement Caitlyn Jenner stated that oh you know I want trans people to get off of Social Security. Do you know what it's like to struggle to need Social Security? Um, so I just think that also in that it can be a little miseducation as well. So it depends on who's speaking and what they're speaking about. So I think it's very firm that anybody in any community, whether it's Black Lives Matter or, you know, um, trying to fight against discrimination against Asians, but you only can speak for yourself and the people who you've had these experiences with, because we don't want to do more damage than has already been done to our community, if that makes sense. Yeah, and I just think about, um, you know, it's it's a very simple statement, but I just wish that we could all see people as people and and kind of start with that very baseline thing as opposed to, I think when a, for a lot of individuals, it seems like the first thing that jumps into their heads is whatever the difference is, right? And, you know, and that comes to mind first and foremost. And I just wish that we would all start with the baseline of, this is a person just like me and to find the commonality versus the difference and to start from from that baseline um i want to ask you'd mentioned before about um you know the the abusive relationship that you were a uh, a part of and it, you'd mentioned that this is something that happens um in, in the trans community perhaps at a disproportionate rate than um than other uh communities um why do you think that 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 is and you know what are some of the the, the rational um reasons for that in your view um first and foremost i would say um family alienation you know you're you know alienated from your family nine times out of ten especially in the black trans community and so when you are trying to find someone to love you who's going to love you unconditionally and you think you find that and within that you know a lot of abusers use that against us well your family don't want you so where are you going to go you know be lucky that i want you and it's and it's you know not having that self-worth and i think main point is the community as well we didn't really have community to lean on. I know I didn't at that time. I didn't know who to turn to. Um, so I think it's a lot of them playing on, you don't have your family, you can't get a job, you're dependent on me. So you need to do everything that I say. And that is the trend that I see on and on and on within the trans community when it comes to abusive relationships. I was just trying to counsel someone a few weeks ago, you know, and we only can do so much until an individual is ready to leave because mm-hmm. I, I was programmed for six years. And I think about that six years of my life, the things that I probably could have accomplished, but I was programmed. And I think people think, understand, think that it's so easy to just walk away and it's not. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that having that outlet for people to be able to express what they're going through, um, even when it comes to going to the hospital, you know, how can you ensure that my abuser is not there is, and I can't really express what I want to express. My abuser used to have me call him on my phone while I'm in a 
room with my doctor so he can hear everything. Mm. And I couldn't fully, you know, express what was going on to my own physician, but nobody ever took the steps to make that happen. Like, are you safe? So ask that question upon reception. Um, so I think it's different ways that us as community can assist, but the main factor is that we don't have anyone else and they use that against us. Mm. And you're building that, right? I mean, you, I mean, you're literally person by person building that. I'd love to hear a little bit about, about the program um, because, you know, we've heard a little bit and, and like I said, I was, and by the way, Jesse, I looked at your, um, I looked up your testimony um, before the legislature and you, you didn't look frightened at all. <laughs> you, just, you delivered a really strong message, which was great. But, um, but you know, let's talk about funding. You know, are, are you getting the funding that you need? Is there advocacy that we need to do um, so that you can, so that, so that you're not providing a program at, out of your living room, I guess I would say. Uh, so it's just so many different uh, moving parts when it comes to this program. Um, so our main focus right now is the transitional housing program. So our March that we had a few weeks ago, we started raising funds. So we raised over $100,000 that is going to be going, you know, after our March expenses, we'll be going specifically towards um, some sort of land or building. Um, so now the flip side is we're working with city officials to try to identify different land and things of that nature or different parcels that may come available. Um, and then we have to find a project manager to try to take on this project. We've been working with some amazing architects who are helping us draft our plan. So when these parcels come available through the city, we can apply. Um, so right now, yes, funding is the key factor because if we go put a down payment on a three-story home, which that we figure that's the way we want to start off to be able to house at least 12 um, homeless trans folks, we're still going to need to provide direct services. We're still going to need to provide staff. So it's like trying to identify different organizations, different grants that may be available to assist us. Um, and I would say we need to start holding these corporations available. Um, it's Pride Month and you go to Target, Steve Madden, everywhere is Pride, Pride, Pride down your throat. But we never see any of these organizations in November and December when the homelessness rate is so high within our community. So it's like we're used um, as profit. And it started, I think it's time for us to start holding these uh, companies accountable and putting some of these money, the money that they're getting from this Pride uh, merchandise to different organizations like mine, the Trans Emergency Fund, the Tulip House that's growing in New Orleans. There's so many different ways that they can contribute funds to make this movement a little bit easier for us. Um, and I just think about all of these buildings that's popping up across Boston that nobody can afford, not in mm -hmm. my community at least. And where's the developer that wanna sign on and say, hey, I wanna put some funds into this project. That's what we're looking for. Um, Massachusetts is supposed to be a great state, but let's make it better by ending trans homelessness in Massachusetts. Um, so I think you're going to hear a lot and see a lot of me over the next few months. Um, even we even thinking about holding a press conference in September um, to just let the community know where we are and what we need from our community and our politicians. Is there a um, do you have a GoFundMe page or a, um, a website that people can give? Yes, so you can go to transemergencyfund.org and there you can go to our transitional housing program and it'll take you to our link um, on AdBlue, which is the Black Lives, Black Trans Lives Matter campaign. Um, and that's where people can donate and get involved. You can also email us and volunteer. Um, if you are a project manager or a developer and want to know more about the project, you can also go to our, our website and shoot us an email um, because this is going to be a community um, 
program. You mentioned um, you know, workforce issues before and workforce discrimination, and of course, you know we've seen across the country a need for uh, for workers in so many different areas, from low level skills to high level skills. Um, do you feel that there is significant discrimination that exists um, in major companies or and even small companies in hiring individuals who are trans, and how does that get addressed? Because obviously, there's legislation that that exists in regard to discrimination, but a lot of the discrimination is you know not overt; it is subvert, as we were talking about before. Very difficult. Oh, this subject is very difficult because it's very hard to prove. Like, oh, well, they didn't give me the job because I'm trans. Right. We don't know who the other candidates are. So it's kind of a lot of times we're just out there stuck completely, continuously filling our application after application after application. And sometimes when we get in the door, they may not know, you know, that we're trans, so they don't write it on our forehead. Uh, but then over the course of that probation period, Co-workers start talking, and next thing you know, you're being caught in the office. I don't. We don't think this is a good fit, and employers have that right, you know. So it's very, very difficult. Um, and that I don't even have an answer to or a possible solution besides trying to educate these employers that how valuable we are, and that you're losing out on on good employees. Um, and that's the same thing though when it comes to housing. You'd be surprised how many landlords have refused a check from us, and wanted to proceed with eviction but didn't want to take like, we're, Hey, we're here. We have the money. And it's like, no, we don't want it. And so you have to think like, okay, do you want to kick this person out because they're trans? And we see it over and over again. So I think it's different things that we need to address. We can just say, we got this bill in place, but how are we going to be holding people accountable? I think that's the real answer that needs to be addressed. Yeah. And I think it goes back to what you said when we began um, this conversation about education and um, I, you know, I think it's really important that employers, and I think, I think this is a is better than it was ten years ago. I mean, in, this is a generalized conversation, not about trans, but that employers are recognizing, and it has to be right at the top of the organization that you know we cannot be seen as uh, a, dinner, a discrimination company. We cannot. Basically, it's not good for business. But but it's not that. It's like deep in our soul, we want to do the right thing and doing the right thing means you know holding employees accountable for their behavior making sure that they're that it's a safe place for everyone making sure that language because language is so important in this issue uh is is proper and then i think the state has um some responsibility as well many of these big employers take state money hold those employers accountable to make sure that they're doing the right thing for the trans community. I think I think it's education and accountability. I think those two things, and, and eventually if you educate properly, you don't need to hold people accountable because they get it. And it's, you know, what's not to get in some ways, do you know what I mean? Right, but also, you know, and, and Peter, I'm, I'm sure you're very aware of this. So let's think about DPH and BPHC for a minute. Um, you know, they have different transgender contracts that they people can bid on and they give out, but they need to open up positions in their departments for trans folks as well, because you have, at most times, cisgender individuals who are making up these programs of what the trans community needs, especially health-wise. So I think that's a disconnect and a disservice to the community because you don't have nobody in that community assisting you with making these decisions. So it's like we need seats at the table and we need jobs in these positions that are making 
major impacts or major decisions for our communities. Yeah, yeah that's a great point. Yeah, we, we need to say it and do it, I think, at the state level. Yeah. Right. Well, thank you both so much. That was a really uh, great edition of the podcast. And, and Chastity, as you continue to move forward on some of these initiatives, we'd love to have you back and uh, and talk more about that uh, them and let us know at BAMSI how we can be uh, supportive as well as you look to uh, push forward um, with the media attention and public awareness uh, in regard to these efforts. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure conversating with you both. And I'll definitely be in touch about all the things that we have coming up. Thank you so much. Looking forward to it. Thank you so much, Chastity. Take care. Thank you. This is Chastity Bowick along with Peter Evers. I am Chris Ryan. Have a great rest of the day, everybody.